Well, good morning, Fellowship Church friends and guests. The Lord be with you. As we gather for worship this morning, the invitation from God's good book is to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. But I don't live under a rock, and so I realize that not everybody entered into this space with that frame of mind this morning. So I wonder, what brings you into worship this morning? Maybe you're here with a kind of holy hunger, an expectation to experience transcendence, God the holy other. Maybe you're here this morning as a holy habit, a tried and true tradition, a long obedience in the same direction. Maybe this morning is an attempt to make up for last night or last week, and you're looking for a fresh start today. Maybe you're here today wearing your second favorite shirt of all because your first favorite is in the pile back there as part of our Lent giveaway, sacrificial, sacrificial giving in the way of Jesus. Maybe you don't know why you're here today and you're hoping that God will reveal it in this next hour or so. Maybe the honest truth is you don't want to be here today. And the honest truth is that you have a hard heart and a stiff neck, to use the biblical language. And, and maybe the best thing you can muster is that you wish you wanted to be here this morning. You want to want to worship this morning. In whatever condition you arrive, we gather to worship and we join our voices with the prophet Isaiah in prayer and in call to worship. So would you please stand and we'll share these words together on the screen saying, Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Please be our strength every morning and our salvation in times of distress. And God says, now I will rise. You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power so that together we can say, the Lord will be our... And so today we enter God's gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise because, and this is good news, because the one who is our judge is also our savior. Thanks be to God. Amen. Hey, we're going to join and sing of those great truths together using the words of the Apostles' Creed.
Friends, our prayer practice this morning is called a prayer of examine. It's an ancient form of prayer that takes into review a certain time span, perhaps a day or a week or even a year, and we examine it before God, unfolding with God in God's presence the the data of our days and the thoughts of our minds throughout. The hope is that it will make us all the more aware of the presence of God in our midst, noticing holy moments, divine appointments, and patterns of formation or deformation throughout our days. So I invite you to pick a time span right now, perhaps yesterday or maybe last week. And with that particular time span in in mind, I invite you to join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we recognize today with the scriptures that from the very beginning of time, it has been your desire to walk with us through all of our days, like you did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. Similarly, on the last day, you also intend to descend and dwell among your people so that in the new Jerusalem, in the kingdom come, it is said that the home of God is among mortals. Even in this time between times, Jesus himself promised to be with us always. So now we pause to remember yesterday or last week in your presence, O God. We silently recall with you a few memorable moments, good or bad. We extend our hands and truly hold these memorable moments before you, O God. And in your presence, we name and feel again the feelings that we felt in those moments. We ask, where were you, O God, when these things were happening? And what do you want us to notice about those instances now? Considering the rest of the day or week, We now tell you, O God, of a time in which we were most aware of your presence. And we admit to you, O God, a time when we were least aware of your presence. We know from the scriptures, O God, that you are love. So help us to remember now an instance in which we gave or received love recently. 
And as we give you thanks, O God, for these instances of love given or received, we also take a moment to confess our regrets. Please forgive us, O God, for those times where you were right there before us and we didn't even notice. For we admit that in the hustle and the bustle of our daily life, it is all too easy to forget about you, O God. So please, from this day forward, wake us up to your presence, warm us up to your ways, and bind us tightly to your good deeds, made known and made available to us most clearly through your son, Jesus, the judge who is also our savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
hands, I invite you to stand and let's sing together. It is well with my soul.
Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is indeed well with our souls because of Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. We have peace not only with God, but also with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you as you are comfortable to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor. Those of you joining us in the online chat, greet one another. Well, good morning. That wasn't very robust. Come on. Good morning. After that song, we can give a little bit of oomph style, can't we? That was awesome. Thank you, uh, worship team, and uh, especially to the, the brass ensemble that was helping us this morning. My name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you're visiting with us this morning, whether in person or from afar online, we are glad uh, that you're with us. And if you'd like to make yourself known to us, you can through the connection cards uh, that are at the back of the sanctuary. You see them on the screen uh, and also available online. Well, if uh, this coming, uh, if we're, if this church calendar was a movie, we would be kind of uh, just about ready to hear the brass and the big crescendo of music. We're kind of in that like, mm, something's gonna happen stage in the church life because we have some significant things happening in the next couple weeks. And I encourage you to check out your bulletin because there's lots of save the dates for uh, our high and holy week uh, coming up uh, just a week away. We know that uh, some of of you might be uh, venturing off for spring break, but for those of us that are still here, uh, we encourage you to join us uh, for those services. Uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that. And also uh, soon after you get back, we'll even have a congregational meeting. But like I said, check this uh, for all of the information on that. Speaking of the bulletin, uh, I'm, uh, we're mourning with our dear sister, uh, Nate, uh, Connie Dreyer and Nate, uh, who lost uh, her brother who actually lived with them for the last number of years. Uh, that's in the bulletin, but it's a little bit uh, twisted in that it says it's Nate's brother. Uh, and in fact, it was Connie's brother. So we're grieving with the Dreyers this morning as well. Also today, though, we have uh, a number of opportunities for you in the gathering place uh, to practice mercy. Uh, if you've been with us through the season of Lent, we've had a mercy practice each week. And the focus of our mercy practices this week is what does it mean for us to care for the sick? Uh, straight from Matthew 25, which you'll hear in just a moment. Uh, and there's a number of ways in which we do that at Fellowship Church. Uh, you can do that by helping someone get a ride to worship or to a medical appointment as a driver. You can do that through a meal ministry or writing a simple card uh, to someone that can't make it to worship as often as they'd like to anymore. A bunch of cool stuff is out there in the atrium. Talk to Pat or one of our care people that are out there uh, between both services. 
Also, after the worship service this morning, you have the opportunity to go roller skating at Roll Escape with the church family. There's over a hundred of us heading over there uh, this afternoon. Uh, you too can join, even if you're a little hesitant to go on the roller skates. Miss Betsy tells me it's still a bargain because for five bucks, where else can you get dinner with pizza and pop? Uh, so join us at least for a meal uh, and to wave at us on the on the uh, on the roller rink or skate. What do, what do you call that floor? area, uh, or, you know, try it out. Uh, only five bucks, regardless if you try it or not, and you get pizza. Come on, what better deal is there than that? Also, this morning, we got lots of cool stuff happening this morning. Uh, we get to hear from another one of our artists uh, right here uh, from Fellowship Church, who's helping us embody uh, this Lenten season. Check out this short video from Eliana Heisman. I'm Eliana, and my piece is called It Wasn't Only Peter. It's a reflection on Matthew 26, 69, which is the story of Peter denying Jesus. When I was thinking about this text, I was reminded that although Peter kind of gets the blame for denying Jesus, he was still the only one of the disciples who bothered to show up and be there with Jesus during his trial. So I was kind of thinking about this when creating it. So my art is a depiction of Peter, um, although instead of his eyes, he has mirrors, so you can kind of see yourself in his place, because we've really all been there in that we're not quite sure what to do, but we know we've really messed up. So. Uh, amen. Uh, Eliana, how cool is it that a 14-year-old can lead us in that way uh, through her art? We're so grateful uh, for her uh, leadership in that. Uh, kids ages three through eighth grade at this time are invited to go to Sunday school while the rest of us uh, prepare our hearts to hear God's word uh, through some music uh, from the bell choir. Take a listen.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Grateful for this day. Grateful for the turn of the seasons. Grateful for the new life that spring brings. And grateful for all the ways that through creation you show us the ways that you sustain not just creation, but us and our very souls. Thank you for the chance to gather together with friends, to worship, to sing, to pray, to confess, to mourn with our friends, and to study the scriptures together. As we turn toward those scriptures, Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, and open our ears that we might hear, and open our hands that we might love and serve you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tiara, and I am one of the pastors here. Um, if I have not yet met you, and this morning we are hopping back into a series that we're calling The Passion That Teaches. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew's Gospel, like all the other Gospels, uh, regards teacher and uh, Jesus, and looks to Jesus as Lord, um, as Savior, as friend, and also, and also as teacher, specifically as teacher. Uh, last week, Reverend Dieleman introduced us to the last of Jesus' formal teachings, uh, Jesus' final judgment discourse. We're going to pick up there where we left off. Uh, now, these are some of the most challenging, most uncomfortable teachings of Jesus, but I also think. Um, precisely because of that, they are some of the most relevant teachings of Jesus for us, because in them, Jesus looks around at the chaos of his day, and he looks at his disciples who will soon have to face it, and he offers them a teaching to help them navigate it. In that way, it's in these teachings that I think Jesus is most like a shepherd, not only for disciples in the first century, but disciples in the 21st century who are certainly not strangers to chaos in the world or in our lives. You're familiar with chaos, right? The chaos of nations rising up against other nations or unintentional escalation and threats of cold war or chaos like earthquakes that leave thousands dead. Chaos like mass violence in schools and community centers and workplaces and even churches. Chaos like plagues and viruses ripping through all the continents of the world. Chaos like bank collapses and threats of recession. Chaos like siblings and spouses going to war with one another. Chaos like classmates and teammates undermining each other. Chaos like classmates and uh, colleagues and teammates turning on each other. How do we navigate the chaos of our world and even of our own lives and even of our own hearts? And how do we somehow become more like Christ in the midst of it and through it? Well, for that, we need to turn to the words of Jesus and his final teaching before his passion. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 25, picking up in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. 
and I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it, brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, to the goats on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our text is the last of three parables and teachings about the final judgment. And in each of these parables and teachings, Jesus sort of lifts up the same idea, but he kind of turns it ever so slightly in each one of those to inflect um, the same idea, but from different angles. But what does he want his disciples to see? Well, to get to that, I want to return to the moment that sets this whole discourse in motion. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is in the temple and he has just been rejected by the religious leaders and experts in the law. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus begins to lament, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Now, Luke also records in chapter 13 the exact same lament, almost verbatim. But Luke also includes a second lament that I think gets to the heart of Jesus' lament. Notice the differences. In the second lament, Jesus says that God's people have failed to recognize the way of true peace the things that make for peace. I'm gonna draw your attention to this word peace for a second. Uh, In the Greek, peace is the word irene. Repeat after me, irene. That's where we get the name Irene from. Uh, In the Hebrew, peace is the word shalom. Repeat after me, shalom. Shalom, um, I think I prefer the Hebrew version because it's a little bit more robust of a meaning. Uh, In the Greek, you're talking kind of peace or prosperity, but in the Hebrew, uh, peace means wholeness or completeness. It means restoration or salvation. Um, Another uh, uh, text said uh, deliverance. Um, Shalom, shalom is this feeling of satisfaction when all of the things are as they should be or their right, uh, right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, right relationship with creation. Shalom is what humanity had before the fall into sin. And shalom is what God makes with us through Jesus Christ. But Jesus says that God's people have become just like the other nations. This is the critique of the prophets before Jesus. And this is Jesus' critique here. God's people have become like the other nations, not recognizing the way of shalom and instead engaged in power struggles and militaristic skirmishes and a quest for earthly riches to fund it all. And the temple, Jesus says, the temple has become the hub for this. They've failed to recognize the things that make for true and lasting shalom. And because of this, Jesus says in Luke 19, their enemies will eventually lay siege to their city and destroy them. Jesus sees the chaos to come. And he wants to protect his people like a mother hen. He wants to mother hen them. But Jesus says they've rejected him and they've rejected the way to the shalom that he brings. And they're going to do as a result to him what they've done to all the other prophets before him. 
And not just to him, they're going to persecute his disciples too. So Jesus laments the fate of Jerusalem, but also laments the state of the temple. He says that their house is left desolate. It's a wilderness. It's empty. It's hollow, Jesus says. And what does he mean by that? Well, as Jesus departs from the temple along with his disciples, uh, the disciples begin to marvel at the architecture of the, of the temple because, quite frankly, the temple is stunning. Uh, Herod, uh, remember Herod was a great builder, and he renovated the second temple, uh, made it quite incredible. Uh, he initiated the most massive construction project of the first century, and because it was so massive, it took several years, kind of like I-196, uh, so so this, <laughs> this is a replica of um, Herod's temple, what it would have looked like. Uh, this sits at the Isaiah, I'm sorry, the Israel Museum. Uh, it's massive in comparison to the rest of the city. Uh, Herod doubled the size of the Temple Mount, the, the temple since on the Temple Mount. He doubled the size, making it the largest foundation of a place of worship in the ancient world. Uh, he employed 10,000 artisans and 1,000 priests as carpenters and masons. Uh, so understandably, the disciples are staring up at the architecture and the artisanship of it all, just admiring it. But remember, what did Jesus say about the temple? It is left what? Desolate. It is left desolate. And not just spiritually, Jesus says, this whole thing, he says, at the beginning of chapter 24, this whole thing is going to come tumbling down now, we know from history that in 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem and the temple literally came tumbling down. It was completely leveled by the Romans, not even 40 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And right now, in this moment, Jesus has just prophetically pronounced it to his disciples 40 years before it took place, which prompts his disciples to ask some questions wait, what, when is this going to happen? Uh, tell us, when will these things be, they ask, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, these are three things. There are three things I want you to notice uh, about this question. Uh, there's the first part of the question, when will these things take place? Now, think about the immediate context. What are these things? Destruction of the temple. Destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem. And then there's the second part of the question, and what will be the sign of your coming? Uh, this word coming is a familiar word to us, uh, parousia. Uh, repeat after me, parousia. Parousia, yeah. Uh, it means coming, it means advent, it means appearance. It can mean appearance. Uh, in the first century Greek-speaking world, when the ruler of a land or an empire came from the capital city to your city where you lived with all of the other muggles and peasants, uh, that person was making an appearance, a parousia. Uh, it revealed um, the ruler's royal status, um, assured people that the ruler was still king. Uh, it was a parousia. You might just think of it like uh, the Queen of England or now her son, King Charles, visiting various cities throughout England. It's a what? Parousia. It's a royal appearance of sorts. So the disciples are using parousia uh, in a similar manner. But think about it in context. What happened just before Jesus, uh, before the disciples asked this question? Jesus has been rejected by the religious leaders. So the disciples are asking Jesus, not just when are you going to appear, when are you going to parousia, but specifically, when are you going to be vindicated when are you going to be vindicated as the real Messiah to the very people who rejected you? Which leads us to the third part of the question and the sign of the end of the age. The word for age is aeon. Repeat after me, aeon. 
You guys are learning so much Greek today. Uh, <laughs> Aeon means past age or present age or the age to come. Is that clear? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so is Jesus referring to is Jesus referring to the present age? Is Jesus referring to the age to come? Uh, there's a lot of debate. And there are a lot of really smart Christians, a lot of really smart, faithful Christians who love Jesus, who think very differently about how to interpret what Jesus means precisely in this passage. And I happen to think that we need all of those people who see it differently in order to understand the fullness of this text. Uh, specifically, I think it's actually a little bit of both that Jesus is talking about both the present age for his disciples in the first century and Jesus is talking about the end of time. Um, it's both of those together, but specifically in first, in first that Jesus is talking about the events in the first century, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. For that reason, I like the way N.T. Wright parses the three parts of this question. Uh, N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar. Uh, he's brilliant. He's written tons of books and commentaries, plus he's English, so everything he says must be right. Uh, and he says, <laughs> he says that when the disciples are asking this particular question, uh, when read within context, he says they're asking, when will the temple be destroyed? When will Jesus be seen or revealed to be the Messiah? And when will the present age come to a close? And what is Jesus' reply? These things will happen within a generation, he says. Now, how long is a generation in the Jewish mind? How long do God's people wander in the desert? 40 years. A generation is about 40 years in the mind of the Jewish people. Uh, the destruction of the temple takes place how many years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus? About 40 years. Yeah, not even quite 40 years. Now, why does that matter? Because as Reverend Dieleman said last week, if we're looking exclusively to the end of time, and not considering the very first century context of God's people at the time of this text, this text being written and recorded, then we'll miss the ways that Jesus is not only mother henning them, but mother henning us, the ways that Jesus is shepherding us in and through the chaos of our world and of our own lives. In this generation, Jesus says, there will be chaos I'm not sure about the precise day or hour, Jesus says, but rebel armies and zealot leaders, they'll say they're coming in the name of the Lord. They'll say they're coming to bring peace. They will convince thousands of people to fight to the death, but don't be deceived by them. And all those who decry the revolt, the people who don't want to fight against Rome, they'll have to flee their own people as the zealots overtake the city. And they will put to death their fellow Jewish citizens. And hundreds will starve, Jesus says, when the Romans lay siege to the city. There will be famine, Jesus says. And thousands will die at the hands of the Roman soldiers. And there will be atrocities even in the temple, Jesus says, as priests are ambushed by Roman soldiers before the altar of God. The city of Jerusalem and its temple will fall, Jesus says. There will not be left one stone on top of another. There will be chaos, Jesus says, but the chaos, Jesus says, will reveal something. What will it reveal? Well, for that, we come back to our teaching for today. The last portion of Jesus' judgment discourse begins with a heavenly court scene. And in this scene, Jesus is sitting where? On a throne. Jesus is sitting on a throne. Now, given all that we've covered today, is Jesus sitting on the throne as he's giving this teaching? No. In fact, Jesus has just been literally kicked out of the temple. He's been rejected by the religious leaders and the religious experts who were supposed to recognize him. 
Yet at the opening of this teaching, Jesus has been enthroned. How did that happen? Uh, well, there's a clue in the text in that very top pass or very uh, top verse when the Son of Man comes in His glory, which is a callback to His words in Matthew 24, where the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory which is itself a callback to Isaiah 13, which we're not gonna get into. We're gonna skip right over that. Um, and we're gonna go to Daniel chapter seven. Uh, even in Matthew 24, Matthew actually says, go back and look at Daniel. So when you go back and you look at Daniel and you specifically look at Daniel seven, you find that Daniel saw in the night visions um, with the clouds of heaven, something and someone like a son of man. And what is he doing? He's coming to the ancient of days or he's coming to God and he's presented before him. Check the directionality. Daniel has the son of man ascending to the father, ascending, not descending, ascending to the heavens on the clouds where he is vindicated by the father and given dominion over all the nations and an everlasting kingdom. What is Jesus saying to his disciples? That somehow the chaos of the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, the chaos of our world, somehow reveals that he is the Messiah. And because of this, he will be proclaimed as king, even in the face of his rejection by the religious leaders. Jesus will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and his kingdom is everlasting. It won't ever be destroyed, which is a sharp contrast a sharp contrast to the kingdoms of the world because they fall all the time. In fact, the very nation that will topple Jerusalem, Rome, will be itself um, failed uh, within a couple of centuries. And then that nation will also topple within a few centuries. And on and on it goes into our own time. That is the way it goes when your kingdom is built not on the everlasting shalom of God, but on the pseudo peace and prosperity of earthly power struggles and the false peace of having the strongest army and earthly riches that support it all. But Jesus says these chaotic turbulent moments in human history are but birth pangs. They're not in themselves the end of the world, but they do point to something. Always they point to the good news of the kingdom that Jesus inaugurates and the true and everlasting shalom that Jesus brings and those who belong to Jesus' kingdom have a story to tell the nations, he says in Matthew 24, a story about the blessing of shalom with God, a story about the blessing of shalom with one another, a story about the blessing of shalom with creation for those who accept rather than reject this Messiah. Against the backdrop of destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and even the chaos of our own age and in every age, the everlasting nature of God's kingdom and the eternal shalom that it brings to us will emerge. But not only will it reveal Jesus as King and Messiah, not only will it reveal his kingdom along with him, it will also reveal his actual followers. In the parables preceding this one, Jesus has identified not only what his kingdom is like, but what his followers are like. Jesus' followers prepare the way for him and his kingdom. His followers are like wise bridesmaids, we learned last week, who lead the festive processional of the bridegroom, welcoming all the guests of all of the nations into the wedding feast. His followers are good and faithful servants who don't keep their blessing of shalom for themselves, but share it with others who don't squander it by becoming like the other nations, but they give it away and bear fruit with it. 
And here in this teaching, Jesus' followers are like those who, even as their world burns to the ground in their midst, they somehow manage to turn toward the needs of others and not to bring destruction to others, but specifically to bring life and restoration and wholeness and healing. They turn toward others with the offer of shalom. Now, this is easier said than done because the human response in moments of chaos is fear. Specifically, fear that shows up in our, our kind of classic fear responses of fear, I'm sorry, of fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, we all have a fear response. Uh, we all do one of these, and all of these are fear responses, and we all have them. Here, uh, here's what I mean by that. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend, and we were telling stories about childhood, and my friend told me a story about this one time. My friend's a preacher's kid too. Uh, he and his mom were coming home from Bible study, and uh, they had left their dad, uh, his dad, at the church, uh, talking to a couple of elders or something. And uh, anyway, he says they unlocked the door, and as his mom was entering into the door, she noticed these like giant bags like in the living room, like in the middle of the floor, which were not there when she left. And she quickly realizes like, oh, someone's robbing the house right now. And uh, he says to his mom, uh, she backs out of the door, she closes the door, she locks it, and he's like, I'm not kidding. And then she takes off running and she leaves me on the porch. <laughs> People do surprising things when they're scared, like hoard toilet paper as we're going into lockdown. Not gonna ask you to raise your hands, you know who you are. Uh, <laughs> when we're scared, we do things we wouldn't ordinarily do, like cut off the ear of a Roman soldier who's arresting Christ or run away, from, uh, run away from Christ in the moment of panic, or deny Christ when people ask, him, ask us about him. When we're scared, we do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do, and we can forget about other people pretty easily. We become survivalists, thinking exclusively about our own needs. But when this occasional forgetting about other people becomes a pattern, Jesus says our souls are in trouble. Our souls are in jeopardy of growing cold. And so just as the rise and fall of empires is pretty standard human behavior, at least fallen human behavior, as so is our survival instinct to think exclusively about our own needs when chaos hits the fan. Which is what makes Jesus' conclusion to this set of teachings so incredibly astonishing. Jesus invites us, uh, Jesus invites us to somehow and miraculously become preppers, uh, but specifically the kind of preppers who look first to the survival of others. Those who will inherit the kingdom are the kinds of people who instinctively ensure the survival of others, who even amidst famine give food to the hungry, even amidst drought give water to the thirsty, even in war they still welcome strangers. They, even when they themselves don't have much, they share their clothes that even when their own hearts are broken, they care for the sick. And that even when they are fugitives being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, they visit the imprisoned. These, to their surprise, actually served him even when they didn't realize it. And because of that, they will become citizens of his everlasting kingdom. He calls them blessed. But those who subsequently refused, refused, to feed the hungry or give drink to the thirsty or, or visit the imprisoned, Jesus calls cursed. Now, is Jesus saying that we can merit our salvation? Absolutely not. But is, he is saying that our habits and our practices matter. 
And not only that they matter, but that they have eternal significance. They prepare us for eternity. Our thoughts, words, and deeds either transform or deform us, and that by them we become something fit for the eternity that we will enjoy and love. Here's what I mean by that. I just started a second round of physical, sorry, third round, third round of physical therapy. It's hard to keep track. And uh, this weekend I was um, in the physical therapist's office and we were working on an exercise, uh, an exercise for my ankle and my knee, which is what I actually came in for. And then I couldn't do the exercise because I also several weeks ago fell on my wrist. And so (laughs) no new injuries in 2023. That's my goal. Uh, So she uh, starts to look at my wrist and she notices that essentially there are these like little bones in your wrist and they're kind of, they're kind of malleable. They're kind of flexible. And because I had fell on my left side, trying to avoid falling on anything on this side, um, I jammed it jammed it. And so for the last couple of months now, the wrist has been jammed and the, she literally was like feeling for one of these little bones and it wasn't there. And so basically she's working to, over the course of like 15 minutes, bend it back into place. Your soul is like these little malleable bones in your wrist. It, um, you fall on it, you hurt it, like the fall into sin, and it jams it out of place. Um, sin and brokenness jams our souls out of place. And it seems that the work that God is doing is putting them back into place so that it functions, so that our soul functions the way that it's supposed to, where it extends love and shalom to others. Um, And it does that, we do that through habits and practices. Over the last several weeks, we've been giving you habits and practices, and there's nothing magical. There's nothing magical about feeding the hungry. There's nothing magical, as much as I love the prayer of examine, it's my favorite. There's nothing magical about the prayer of examine. What is happening though, is that the Holy Spirit meets us in the prayer of examen. And the Holy Spirit meets us in the practice of feeding the hungry and uses those habits and practices to transform our souls so that they function to love and give shalom and bring shalom wherever we might be. Our habits and our practices are what God uses to shape our souls and our lives after Christ and his coming kingdom. And just as the chaos and the craziness of the first century world revealed Christ and Christ's kingdom and his followers, so also, so also the chaos in our own time shapes us and our lives um, into something, not just because we're in ideal circumstances, but precisely when we're not in ideal circumstances, in moments um, that are chaotic, moments where we're tempted to maybe... Um, suspend normal practice, uh, moments where we're tempted to excuse ourselves, moments when the world is falling apart and we're like, "Ah, I need to hoard all the toilet paper. In those moments, Jesus says, our actions and our habits matter. Here's the last thing I'll say. I think Jesus is able to separate the sheep and the goats so easily, not because Jesus is delighting in judgment or nor is he delighting in the loss of our souls. Hear the heart of God in this. Um, Jesus is able to separate the sheep, the sheep and the goats so easily because he looks into their eyes and when he sees the sheep, he sees people who look like him, people who did what he did. It's really that straightforward because Jesus is the one who stared into the chaos of our world and of our souls and he left heaven in order to enter into it. Jesus is the one who becomes food for the hungry, 
and drink for the thirsty. Jesus is the one who becomes the robe of righteousness for the naked. Jesus is the gracious hospitality of God for strangers and even enemies at war. Jesus is the physician who cares for our sin-sick souls even as he bleeds on a cross. And Jesus is ultimately the one who descends into hell itself to proclaim freedom to the captives, to you and to me. Jesus is our peace. He is our shalom. And it is because of him that we can be people who bring shalom, who bring life, who bring wholeness to others, even when our own hearts are breaking. And not only that, but when we do, we proclaim the good news of Christ's kingdom and the shalom available in him until he comes again. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for the offer of shalom. And we are so grateful that you have transformed our hearts so that we can not only step into your shalom, but be people who bear it, even in the hardest of circumstances. We thank you that you enter into the chaos of our world and of our lives and of our hearts to bring restoration. And we pray that you would every day, day by day, help us to be people who do the same. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Friends, in our response this morning, we will sing to this Jesus that Pastor Tara just described, um, the one who can save and redeem and who alone can bring us peace and shalom for us and for the whole world. Would you stand and let's sing together?
Cheers in Christ. One final blessing for us this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. Amen. And join us in singing the doxology.